Welcome to the Breaking Boundaries podcast. I'm Annalise Riles, Executive Director of Northwestern University's Roberta Buffett Institute for Global Affairs. The Northwestern Buffett Institute is dedicated to breaking through traditional silos of expertise, geography, culture, and language to surface novel solutions to pressing global challenges. We've been talking all year about different United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, but there's one special goal, goal number 17. It's called Partnership for the Goals. And the idea here is that we need to strengthen how we work together across fields and domains of knowledge and professions and geographical regions to address these goals altogether. Today's guest says solving the world's most complex problems, such as those United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, requires new ways of thinking. Julio Otino is Dean of the McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Northwestern University. He's without a doubt a boundary breaker, a pathbreaking scientist specializing in nonlinear dynamics and complex systems, and also a well-recognized painter. He has championed what he calls whole brain thinking. Julio's career also has spanned geographical boundaries. Born and educated first in Argentina, he now leads a major American research center. His new book, The Nexus, Augmented Thinking for a Complex World, The New Convergence of Art, Technology, and Science, is just out this month. Welcome, Julio. So glad you're here. Thank you, Annelies. So as I mentioned, Julio, you're an engineer and an artist. Can you share a little bit about your background and how your love of the physical sciences and the visual arts developed in tandem? Yeah, in retrospect, I was blessed. My father was in histology and embryology, so I grew up surrounded by microscopes, for example. And my mother was a classically trained artist. So I grew up with those two things. I was able to draw and paint, but at some point I had to make a decision. I went into the side of pure and timeless that was more math. The truth is that that purity and timelessness allowed me to survive during a time in which it was very, very difficult in Argentina. People were vanishing right and left, kidnapped, And at that point, to make it even worse, I was an officer in the Argentinian Navy while all of these things were going on. So if you drifted too much into politics, you had a good chance of vanishing. All my creativity and expression and everything went into painting. I had these two things. I never regarded them as separate, but for a while, while I was doing my PhD, uh, the art part kind of stayed to one side. Although you don't have to really go and dig too deeply to find between mathematics that the word beauty appears all the time. So that's how I kind of started. That's really, really interesting. And what a gift from both of your parents to to have both of those traditions in your family. Your new book, The Nexus, is a call to augmenting our knowledge, as you say, in the face of complex global challenges by bringing together the insights and the moves, if you like, of art, technology, and science. What inspired you to write this book? Is it this personal story of your own experience with this? There were lots and lots of reasons. I mean, one is, it became very, very clear when you talk with people in each domain, 
there are so many misconceptions. Artists thinking that science is cold and rational and they don't understand the passions that go into it. Scientists thinking that somehow to be an artist, you have to be constantly inspired and you are always creating and they don't understand the sweating and perspiration that goes into. But I think the main problem that we saw was people equating these domains by the outcomes that they produce, the outcomes or consequences, rather than focusing on how these domains and the people who inhabit the domains think. Clearly, an economist has a pair of glasses through which they see the world, which is different than a political scientist, is different than an anthropologist, is very different than a civil engineer, for example. Our question was, if you are so inclined, could you augment and have another pair of glasses through which you can see a broader reality, a broader set of possible ideas, because... At this moment, we need the broadest set of ideas to attack the problems in the world. It was the realization that there are lots of preconceptions out there. And the question is, how can you find people who are good navigating these spaces? And my belief is that the people who can operate in this joint domain, the union of all the domains, the nexus, these will be the leaders of the future. I want to ask you about the description of the three fields and the way people think in the three fields, first of all, because it's really, really interesting. You say at one point that art is about breaking paradigms and the search for the new, but science is about building paradigms or exhausting paradigms. And technology is about building and disrupting paradigms. Can you explain that a little bit? We really believe that the same science that governs planet Earth is the same science that governs every region of the universe. The most amazing thing about the world, and this is quoting Einstein, it is comprehensible that science allows us to make sense of things. I mean, the biggest discovery of science is not the scientific method. It's how science works, the process of science. Science has been open source since scientific journals were kind of invented. You, you build your arguments based on arguments that people had before. And once in a blue moon, you will come with an argument that shakes everything up. Quantum mechanics or evolution or the birth of molecular biology. So in science, the idea of standing in the shoulders of giants is a good idea. This is how you make arguments that carry the day. Technology, by the way, there is no warranty that if there are other worlds out there, they will have the same technology that we have. For example, we could be living in a world where instead of going to VHS, we, we had beta, for example. So in technology, the only reason to stand on the shoulders of an elder giant is to crush the elder giant. You don't wait for a technology to run its course before the new one comes in. And in art, and I should clarify, I'm taking the viewpoint of art as being visual arts, plastic arts, modern and contemporary. In art is a bad idea to stand close to anybody. I give an example in the book of paintings and sort of define the reader to order them in a timeline, paintings in between, I would say, 1910, 1980. And there is no way that without real knowledge of history of art, you can do that. The timeline in science is clear. The timeline in technology is clear. Not so in art. It's more chaotic. All the periods sort of overlap. 
one of the main arguments of the book is technology always is in between art and science. Is the evolution that makes the biggest difference in how they are. Now let's talk about what it means to engage in augmented thinking where these come together. So our podcast community is really focused on global challenges like sustainability, or, you know, you gave the example of peace and justice in the context of authoritarian regimes, whatever example you might prefer. How does augmented thinking help you to get to new solutions in this space? There is one thing that we sort of highlight in the book, and it's this. When you have this broader thinking space, this broader set of ideas, there may be something that could feel very uncomfortable at some point, and it's that you have two ideas that are diametrically opposed to each other because you are able to think like an artist and a scientist. We are using the stereotypes in here. I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald who said the ability of holding two opposing thoughts and still be able to function is the signature of being a genius. Okay? So, but the ability come to a rational way of dealing with opposing arguments and opposing viewpoints, I think it's going to be like one of the leadership characteristics of the 21st century. You know, due to the problems that you are dealing with, that the solutions are never black or white. They are all in between. They are all viewpoints that sort of at the extremes seem to be opposed to each other. And the ability to sort of be able to operate in that domain where the ideas uh, sort of conflict with each other, I think is one of the consequences of having a broader thinking space. A good example of someone who could understand how other people thought was Steve Jobs. So Steve Jobs, his soulmate, the person that he could have philosophical conversations with was Johnny Ives the chief designer for IBM. So Johnny Ives was a designer. Steve Jobs was not a designer. He had the sensitivity he understood. He understood how that was central to Apple. But when it came time to leave Apple in the hands of someone else, he picked the polar opposite of Johnny Ives. He picked Tim Cook, who was an industrial engineer, an expert in supply chains, logistics. So he left things in the hands of Cook, because he understood what was involved on the Cook side. I'm sure he thought this will be an anchoring point, and all of this ethos of design that pervade Apple will survive. I think the genius of Steve Jobs was to understand both sides. He understood much more than people think about how the structure of the organization was part of the culture as well. I mentioned this as an example of someone who could traverse these two domains, and thanks to understanding these two domains, he was able to create something unique. And in a sense, the book is an example of doing just that. If Steve Jobs was making iPods and phones, it seems to me that what you're making in this book is a kind of a distillation of how innovation actually happens. And you're, you're giving us a very mature and sophisticated and, you know, deep understanding of how people produce something new. So that's really exciting. And I want to talk a little bit about what 
some of that distillation is because I'm going to be thinking about it for a long time to come, what you have to say here. So you have hundreds of points, but one is that there are three particular ways that innovation happens. And I'll just put out the names and then you can explain to us what this means. The first is what you call the adjacent possible. The second is inspired tinkering. And the third is balancing three or more mundane elements to create something unique. Wow. So can you break those down for us and maybe give us an example of how innovation is produced in each of those? So let's start with the adjacent possible. What's that? Well, none of those ideas is really new. Okay. The adjacent thinking space comes from a theoretical biologist of name Stuart Kaufman. And it's basically how the world works. At some point, the boundary of all organisms on Earth was multicellular organisms. And from there, you found maybe sponges and things like that. But you don't go directly to form an elephant from there. So from that boundary of the domain, the next layer is the adjacent possible. And is what you can go just advancing the layer below that, okay? So you go and with all the knowledge that you have in there, you produce the next layer. Some people, in fact, tried to make a business out of this. The fellow who was the chief technical officer of Microsoft, Nathan Mirvold, tried to connect the best minds in the world and then see if they could go one layer above that. And in fact, some people have even studied this because a consequence of this is that if you have all this layer of knowledge, there are lots of people who are at the frontier who will know everything the layer. And the idea that there will be something above that could occur to several people at the same time. This is the multiple discoveries sort of idea. So they even check with people who are regarded as geniuses, like based on the number of ideas that they had, how many of the ideas that they had were anticipated by other individuals. One example is Lord Kelvin, who I think I mentioned in the book. So Lord Kelvin had, let's say, 10 ideas, and those 10 ideas were almost at the same time produced by 10 other people. But the genius of Lord Kelvin was that it took only one person, Lord Kelvin, to collapse the ideas that these 10 other people would have. The whole idea of a meeting, scientific meeting or meetings in your space, when you bring the best minds in their field together physically, is really exploiting the adjacent possible. You have all of these people and there are all of these nonlinear combinations of things and someone can go and produce the next thing. I'm wondering if the development of the COVID vaccine might be an, an example of any of this. What do you think? I think that lots of minds started converging in the same space. And I think that that could be one example. I mean, people have exploited this. You could argue the Manhattan Project was one such thing. I pray to God that these examples, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences has a project on saving democracy. I hope they are right, okay? They are putting lots of people, we need help on that. So that one is to our Kaufman, really, with evolution. I would say that a lot of science, for example, and a lot of technology is tinkering. Most of my work has been curiosity-driven 
experiments. My experiments are very simple. It's not like the idea that science advances by hypothesis testing is fine in some examples, but there was not hypothesis testing in what Newton did or Einstein did. It's, it's people kind of tinkering, playing with ideas and eventually hitting on something interesting. And then you go more deeply into that. At some point in the verification, you can subject things to more scientific scrutiny. But uh, at the point of creation, tinkering, I think is essential in the ideas. I think the third one that you mentioned was three ideas. And on that one, I have to, I gave credit in the book to a, a friend of mine, Mark Mills. Combining two things sometimes is easy. Three is much harder. Photography is one example. Many people were trying to discover how you could use chemical reactions really to produce something that will react to light. That was known. Making sure that that could be put on paper is a different thing. And making sure that you can subsequently reveal what was in the paper is another thing. So many people were able to do, let's say, one of those three things. Either the chemistry, fixing them, develop what, what we know they call the film. But the idea was at some point someone saw the three together. The history of technology is littered with people who see things almost at the same time. It's very much connected with the adjacent possible. Someone was able to combine those three things and produce something that was truly unique. So if I may, I think that this can be operationalized as a kind of a recipe for finding new solutions. So if your solution out there is how to solve the climate crisis or how to think about the water supply or what to do about electric cars or whatever it might be, one thing that Julio seems to be telling us here is ask yourself, first of all, is there something right next to what we know? Could we just take one little step, the adjacent possible? Or let's just play around here. You don't have to have all the answers. Tinker, just play. You might find something. Or are there other pieces in the, the puzzle that we have that if we only brought them together would produce something really exciting? That's basically what you do when you curate one of your events and bring people. What you hope is this, that these ideas are there for everybody to see. They will click in the minds of some individuals and something new will emerge. That's right. And we spend a lot of time at Buffett trying to think about how to do that in a smart and creative way to innovate in that space. And so I was really interested in some of the examples you present in chapter five of how this has been done successfully in all different time periods from the Enlightenment to present day. And you mentioned Bell Labs. Bell Labs had something that is very hard to have now. They had a monopoly. They had tons of money. They would let people explore ideas, but it was more than that. They put people who were just thinkers with people who were doers, and they forced a connectivity between them. On one hand, they could produce ideas that were super practical, and at the same time, produce ideas that were very much out there, like the discovery of the Big Bang, uh, came from Bell Labs. Bell Labs let 30 engineers, they let them free for one year to interact with 10 avant-garde artists. John Cage, Rauschenberg, Lucinda Childs, 
And they created this thing that became a social event in New York at the Armory Show called Nine Evenings of Theater and Engineering. And many technologies were unveiled there for the first time. It would be great to recreate something like this in here. I think we could do it within the university. That is a, a sad part of the story that you tell. When I look at all the examples you have, number one, they're all pretty short-lived. The Bauhaus doesn't last that long. Bell Labs doesn't last that long. And they're also all cases where, for one reason or another, the group has so much excess capital that they can blow through that they don't even have to be sort of beholden to market discipline. Am I right about that? And what lessons do you draw from that? Well, I, I think some of them are short-lived. Black Mountain College and the Bauhaus, I think they were 14 years. But the consequences have been long-lived. We are still living with the consequences of the Bauhaus. I think universities should be playing this role now, much more so than we're actually doing. You have an amazing amount of freedom in here. I don't think we're exploiting that much or as much as is needed. So why are we not doing that in the university? What are the impediments to us unleashing innovation at the levels that you're describing? I think I made the point in the book that at the level of faculty, especially in science and engineering, you have a remarkable opportunity to reinvent yourself. The research that you do is what you think you want to do, plus what the market is willing to support. But it shouldn't be all market-driven. In fact, a lot of research should be market-driving. You drive the market with your work. But many people stay comfortable in their own domains and they don't look right and left to see how can they be enriched by others and how they can enrich others. So I think that there is much more of an opportunity to do that we are doing now. I have been desperately trying to do this within my own domain. We still have these categories boxes, but the boxes are more a historical remnant than the reality. So in some sense, the whole book is about breaking those boundaries, but being aware that those boxes still exist, really. And you mention in the book that leadership now is about breaking those boundaries and leading your institution or your team to really think in a more augmented way. Do you think that a leader of, whether it's a president of a university or a CEO of a large company, at this historical moment would be capable of transforming some of these institutions into the kinds of transformative organizations like Bell Labs that, that you celebrate in the book? Is that something that could be done? Oh, I think so. I talk a lot about complex systems. And in complex systems, a signature of complex systems is one elements that form part of the system sort of interact with each other to produce consequences that they were not part of the blueprint of the elements. One example, so far, no one has been able to figure out how neurons interacting with each other produce a brain that raises consciousness. That's called emergence. I mean, a much simpler example is fish. You study a fish, but you will never be able to imagine that 10,000 fish together will form a school of fish that moves in unison. That's called emergence. So the role of a leader, in my view, is to produce conditions for successful emergence. You want something that is more than what you put in. You give them a, a, I don't know, a lit match, 
and they come with a forest fire. That's great. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. I want to end by asking you the question I ask all of my guests, which is, as you look at the world today, what are you most worried about and what are you most hopeful about? Something that is kind of depressing to me is that universities should be a place where the most articulate, thoughtful exchange of ideas should take place. Sometimes you may hate an idea, but you could be marveled and how well articulated it is. And we don't seem to be able to do this, even more so this bifurcation that you see everywhere. That's a part that I am concerned about. On the other hand, you see some young people that you have to scratch your head and think, wow, this is where the world will go. I mean, so full of ideas and enthusiasm that you want to capture that. Interestingly enough, universities have both these parts. I'm using universities as an encapsulation of society. But of all parts of society, this should be the birthplace of ideas and also the birthplace of intelligent discussion. And sometimes seems impossible to have that. That's great. Julio Tino, thank you so much for your time today. Annelise, thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk about things that I'm passionate about. And thank you so much for your comments and feedback. For more information on this episode and on the Northwestern Buffett Institute for Global Affairs, visit us at buffett.northwestern.edu. 